So you're in the right room for CSP. If you're looking for a three-part mini-series, it's the first in our, our three-part mini-series. We call you our artist in residence, um, which we are dedicating in memory of Bobby Cherry. I'll mention that in a minute. And we have with us Andy Arnovitz, who I'll introduce as well. This is the end of our 18th year of programs in Orange County. You'll be getting our new schedule in the next few months. I hope you will support us once again so we continue to bring Fest in the Jewish World to Orange County. So uh, many of our programs are recorded. Grendel over there records, if that's okay with you. And uh, it'll be hard for people to understand without seeing the images, but people, people can share. And uh, so that means please take a moment to take off, turn off your cell phones right now so that nothing um, will interrupt the presentation. As I mentioned, we're dedicating the series in memory of Bobby Cherry. Many of you may remember Bobby. Bobby was a longtime patron of CSP, board member of CSP, and um, she attended almost all the events um, of CSP. And her family set up an endowment in her memory. And each year, we will do a program or programs in her memory. So we felt since Bobby loved art, this would be a great way to remember her. Um, other upcoming programs I wanted to mention, Storytelling in the Bible, How and Why, with Zioni Zevit, April 7th. Lithuania and Poland, July 7th through 19th. That trip is sold out, but we're very happy to put you on the wait list in case we have any last-minute cancellations in the next few months. We are looking at, to the surprise of my wife, which, who I've told her, she's listening to this podcast, which she wouldn't be, but I told her I look at trips, and she wants to know in advance what trips. So I, when Mark was in the house, we were going through the Italy trip, and she's like, when are you going to Italy? <laughs> so um, those of you who were on the bus and went to the um, Getty, got an email saying, thank you for coming to Getty. Here are the general, here are the dates we're looking at and just a few things. And if you weren't on the bus, don't worry, I'll send it to you as well. We have no open registration yet because we have nothing yet to register for. But I wanted to give you the dates that we're thinking about, the cost, and the really the most important thing Mark wanted you to know is we're only gonna stay at Palazzo's. So he only likes places that are very, you know, tricked out and uh, it will be a very, Awesome trip to Italy. Um, it will be in December, and I believe if you're writing down December 12th through 22nd, 2021. Okay? But we are, we, I, but I already have, uh, we can only take 30 people given the palazzos we want to stay at, and we already have 20 people that say they want to come, but whoever wants to be on the list of interest will get on the list, and when we open registration, the first to reserve will, um, will join us. Okay. Sorry. I think that's all I want to say, so we'll get into the program. Uh, we're very happy to have Andy Arnovitz with us, and please correct me if I got anything wrong because I was playing around with the bio, um, who is originally from, can you hear me? Is this working? Yeah. From, anybody want to guess which part of the United States of America? I'll give one guess. No, you can't do that because Kansas City, Missouri. Um, she's a multidisciplinary artist working with prints, porcelain, textiles, and paper. Much of her work deals with the flashpoint where religion, gender, and politics meet. Those are issues we'll be discussing in, the, in these three presentations. Um, she's had solo shows at University, uh, Yeshiva University Museum, the LA Mayor Museum of Islamic Art, the Jerusalem Artist House, and she has participated in group shows all over the world. Her work is in the collections of the US Library of Congress, the Museum of Art in Harod, Stanford and Yale University, and other major institutions, and is, and is in many private collections. Uh, Andy is a part of the Brooklyn Museum's feminist art base, is on the board of governors of Bezalel Academy in Jerusalem's Season of Culture. She's the recipient of the Anolik Foundation Artist Book Award and was one of the artists in residence for the new Venice Haggadah project, which we may talk about tomorrow. Yeah, and living underwater project. And living underwater, right. And why is Andy here? Because in 2017, we took 50 people on one of our many trips to Israel. I think uh, Steve Shulkoff was allowed on that trip. Were you, were you in that one? You were there. And um, on our trips to Israel, and Phyllis was there, we gave people many choices. And some of you in the room, raise your hand, decided you wanted to go to Andy Arnowitz's private home. So Rochelle came back, and Beverly came back, and they said we had to bring you here. So I want to please join me in welcoming Andy Arnowitz to the United States of America, sunny Southern California where now it's going to be warm again. Thank you. So thank you very much. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for coming. Um, I think for about the next 50 minutes, I'm going to bombard you with images. Um, if I'm going too fast, you can yell at me, but I want to cover a lot of territory, covering 
15 years of an artist's output takes a, a good bit of time. So I'm going to move at a rapid clip. And I, um, it's, it's definitely true that my art deals with the place where religion, politics, and gender meet. That, for me, is the most fertile territory. And uh, I think living in Israel gives me <laughs> enough inspiration that in a lifetime, I'm not going to be able to address all the issues. So the title of the lecture is Tear Repair. And it has to do with things that are broken and ways of healing them. And, and the beginning of healing is making people aware that there's even a problem. So a lot of the things you're going to learn about and you're going to hear about may come as a surprise, may not come as a surprise. But I deeply believe that a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think that somebody could stand up here and lecture to you for an hour about a problem. But if an image is powerful enough to sear itself into your consciousness, you won't forget it and you won't forget the problem. So I'm going to start with a piece that I made a really long time ago called Wearing My Worries. This is basically a quintessential Jewish mother's garment. It looks like a shemata, like a house coat. OK, so from a distance, it's just a dress. But when you get closer, you realize that all those little polka dots are blisters of worries that are quilted by hand. And they range from huge monumental problems to little bitty things, you know, white sugar to a nuclear Iran. And this is pretty much my modus operandi for working, which is that I try to draw you in visually, aesthetically, and then I kind of punch you between the eyes with whatever the issue is. So worrying is a huge theme of mine. So these are called kamboli. And anybody that's been to Greece has seen all the old men in Greece sitting there with these beads. Uh, worrying, I guess, because uh, worry beads. Now, they're different than prayer beads. If you've been to Jerusalem and you've gone into the Arab shuk, you've seen lots of Arab men with these. Those are actually prayer beads, and they're different. However, I suspect that humanly we're doing the exact same thing, whether they're prayer beads or worry beads. So these are kamboli. These are my worry beads. They're huge. They're breakable. They've come unstrung. They're all over the place. Um, and this, this picture is about, well, obviously with the hair. It's quite old, um, the hair in several less pounds. Um, at the time, there was about 140 beads. There's now over 400. And again, they range from the mundane to the global. Losing my car keys, terrorists, my sons in the army, domestic violence, anti-Semitism, which seems more relevant now than ever. Um, so those are my worry beads, and they really cover everything. They're meant to be an installation like a mountain of them in the center of the room. So from there, continuing my saga of worrying as a kind of a female occupation, one day I was thinking about the story of Chicken Little. Um, and Chicken Little is basically a, a, a tale of a hysterical chicken that thinks that the sky is falling. In other words, the world is about to end. And there have been many moments in the last 20 years of my living in Israel when I didn't feel like the sky was falling, but I did feel that there was an enormous threat to the country or to me and my children. And I thought, you know what? The, the tale of Chicken Little rings true for me. So this is called a coat for Chicken Little. And basically, it's a round coat. There's a little button to fasten it on Chicken Little's neck. And it's covered with hundreds and hundreds of feathers. And attached to each feather is a worry. Um, and I wish I could tell you that my list of worries shrinks, but my list of worries expands over the years. Um, and you can, you know, I worry about getting on the scale. I worry about loving luxury. I worry about being tone deaf. I worry about the art market. I worry about being cheap. I worry about black holes. I worry about I, uh, black ice on the roads. I mean, there's just about everything there. Um, from there, I decided that not just Chicken Little needed a coat, but that I actually am Chicken Little. So this piece is called, I Think I Might Be Chicken Little. Um, and again, I've created this garment that's full of hundreds and hundreds of feathers with worries attached to each one. Now I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to move on to a different kind of garment. Um, but before we do that, I need to give you a little bit of background. So 
I became religious at about the age, I know I don't look, show my Shabbat, but I am. Um, I think I was about 35. And we made Aliyah 20 years ago, I was 40. So both of those decisions were decisions that I made as a mature adult. I decided to become religious, I decided to become Israeli. I wasn't born into either of those two things. And the only thing that I can tell you is that when I, when I was living in America and I would read the newspaper, I felt that everything that I was reading was somehow happening to someone else somewhere else. Um, and when I moved to Israel and decided to stay there, every time I read about something in the paper, I took it personally. And I think through a, a, all kinds of a coincidence of, of different events, my children got older and I had more time to make art, but I started to see broken pieces in Israeli society, broken pieces in Judaism that are partic particularly obvious when you live in Israel. One of the first things that I read about and discovered and was horrified by were the number of agunot in Israel. Does everybody in the room know what an aguna is? So an aguna is, is a religious and orthodox woman whose husband refuses to give her a religious divorce. Okay, so she can have a civil divorce, but without something that's called a get, which is basically the, the legal document that releases her from that wedding, from her marriage, she's trapped. It literally means chained, a chained woman, okay? And I hate to tell you this, but there are hundreds of them in the United States, all right? What? In the United States, and there's over a 1,000 of them in Israel, okay? So to me, this religion that I love, that I think is incredibly benevolent and beautiful and relevant, all of a sudden I find out that there's this blemish, basically, this stain on the rabbis for allowing this to continue. Um, so as a, as a way of protest, as a way of educating people, I asked the Israel National Library for permission to digitally duplicate their antique ketubah collection, and they agreed. And I printed out those antique ketubahs, and then as a metaphor for the state of her marriage, I ripped them to pieces. I then took every piece of that ketubah and I sewed every one of those little pieces because every word of that ketubah, that marriage contract, is now trapping her in this state. And I then reassembled those pieces into coats. But the sleeves and the hems are sewn shut. There's no way out. She's completely trapped. And it's paper, her ketubah, that's trapping her, and paper, her get, this legal document that releases her, that she's waiting for. So I did a whole series of these. So from there, I moved on. And we got to Israel in 1999. In the year 2000, the second Intifada began. So I imagine for most of you, I mean, I grew up in Kansas City. For 15 years, I lived in Atlanta. Nothing in my experience of life had prepared me for living in a city where buses blew up randomly and suicide bombers just appeared outside of restaurant doors. Um, so I was, and I, and, and I had two sets of grandparents saying, what the hell are you guys doing? Come home, this is ridiculous. Um, but we couldn't go home. We, couldn't, we, we didn't wanna leave, and we felt like we were part of the fabric of Israeli society, and just because we had United States passports, deserting when things got tough wasn't something we would entertain. But it was really hard to get my head around it, and I had five little children from the ages of 13 to two taking the bus to school. So this is called A Vest of Prayers. And this is a piece that I made as a response to a suicide vest. So a suicide vest is covered and filled with as many sharp pieces of metal as possible to inflict harm on as many pieces, people as possible. So this vest of prayers is basically comprised of over a thousand scrolled, rolled pieces of prayer books that are tied. And now I'm gonna do a little aside, which is the etching studio where I etch the Jerusalem print workshop is on the seam of, of East Jerusalem and Mea Sharim. It just sits right at, if those of you who know Jerusalem, it's on the corner of Shifte Yisrael and Hanavim Street. And um, it's really on the seam. So I used to go out 
uh, at lunchtime to run errands, and on the streets of Bnei Sharim, I would see these tables set up filled with books. They were old Gemaras, old Haggadahs, old prayer books, and I kept thinking, this is really weird, because if they're damaged, they're supposed to go to a Geniza, to like a proper Jewish burial place where used to fill in and, and stained talit, whatever ritual object it is, they're all supposed to be buried together. Why are they selling these books? And then I thought, I wonder what's going to happen if I go up and try to buy these books from these Haredim, from these ultra-Orthodox men. I'm not covering my hair. I'm wearing jeans. What are they going to do? So I, I searched through the books. I found like a 100-year-old Gemara from Vilna. I found these beautiful old Sidors. I had a stack about this high, and I said, how much? And he said, 36 shekels. And I took home these Sidors. So these are made with pages of old prayer books that were basically being sold. So I want to, as, a, as kind of something to put in your heads, I want to talk about, because you're going to see this over and over again in my work, the, work, the motions of wrapping, binding, and winding, and tying. I believe these are quintessential Jewish motions. And I think when you start to think about how many things in the Jewish religion have these motions in them, you're going to realize that we do this all the time. For example, the bride walks around the groom seven times, and we wrap tefillin, and we tie tzitzit, and we bind the Torah. And some people use a wimple to bind a newborn at its bris, and we braid halot. And when women light candles, we do this three times, like binding, winding, wrapping, tying, scrolling mezuzahs. These things happen over and over again, even a shroud. There's special knots that the Hevra Kadisha ties in a shroud of the deceased. So these things happen over and over again. So in this piece, it's kind of an ode. Basically, this is what I think the Jewish response is in times of trouble, which is we assemble as a community. We don't believe you go off on a mountaintop by yourself and pray, but we come together. In fact, there's a whole series of prayers that you're only allowed to say if there's a minion. Okay, so we honor community. And in times of trouble, what do we Jews do? We pray. And for me, these are the quintessential Jewish tools. They're paper, string, and words. This piece is actually, if anybody's going to Berlin, um, there's a wonderful exhibition at the Jewish Museum in Berlin called Jerusalem, and this is there. So this next piece is something that I made at the beginning of that second Enifada, and it's called A Vest for a Child in These Times. So I, I don't need to tell you that Anyone who had the slightest inclination to be superstitious became really superstitious. All the mothers I knew, we had rituals. Like you had to kiss the top of your kid's head every day before they left the door. And if they didn't, they had to come back in and get that kiss. And there, were, there was just a lot of, of uh, it's called emunot velot. It's like just buba maitza'i, superstition things. Please protect my child. Please let them come home okay. okay. So this was a piece that I made called A Vest for a Child in These Times, and it has Tefillat Aderach, the Traveler's Prayer in it. It has all kinds of Kabbalistic, you know, please protect this child, and mezuzot, and all the kinds of things that as parents we wanted to, we wanted to put our kids in bubbles, basically, when, when it was really bad in Jerusalem. Um, and again, we've got scrolls, and we've got strings, and we've got tying. This next piece is called If Only They Had Asked Us. There's about 4,560 scrolls on this piece. And I also, I don't show you, but I always finish the front and the back identically. So this looks like a mantle of leadership or a robe of judgment. What I did is I took pages of the Gemara that deal, tractates that deal with women, Nashim. And I had them printed in different colors, in 42 different colors. And then we rolled these pages into scrolls, and we tied them. And this is, this is kind of a very obvious statement. If only they had asked us, this basically says, if only they had asked women to help participate in writing halakha, it would be far more vibrant and colorful. And somebody saw this piece and said, well, you know, those are also the colors of gay pride. And I said, well, their voices are missing too. Um, okay, now I am really going to switch gears. So, who do you think these women are? These are Jews. These are Jewish women in Beit Shemesh. So, this is another 
one of those moments when I discovered something and I became totally outraged. So this is a sect of Jewish people that basically wear burqas. And I want to tell you that that same etching studio where I do my etchings, I have watched over the course of 20 years, where first there were Haredi women dressed modestly. Pink, yellow, navy, green. And then color disappeared, and they were wearing navy blue and black. And then they were wearing black. And then the skirts went all the way to the ground, and they were buttoned up to here. OK, no big deal. Then there was a black cape. Then there was a black skirt and a black cape and a black bonnet. And then the burkas appeared. OK, this, is a, this next one is this is a picture that I took of a woman. And note the boys. These are Haredi boys with tzitzit and kippot. That's how you know she's Jewish. OK? It's pretty shocking. So as a response to this, because I, I couldn't believe that these were Jewish, Jews doing this to themselves, I looked to Albrecht Dürer's really famous diptych of Adam and Eve. This is in the Prado in Madrid. And I thought, OK, this painting was painted in 1507. And obviously, they were more comfortable with the human form in 1507 than we are today. And I did to Eve what these women are doing to themselves. So I did a digital reproduction of the painting. I isolated the leaves in the painting. I cut them all out. And I covered Eve. And I think what's interesting is that when only her one eye is exposed, it's very accusatory. Like, what's happening here? Now, somebody was in my studio, and they saw this. And they said, well, you know, a lot of those women in the burkas, they're balchuva. They're like newly religious. And they've got tattoos all over them. And this allows them to hide them. And I said, what? I said, I had no idea. So I had sort of a mea culpa moment. And I said, wow, I don't know anything. I'm so quick to judge and to you know, create artwork about these people. And I have no idea what their story is. So this is called You Don't Know a Thing About Me. So on the outside, they're just black, black babushka dolls. But if you take the time to open them and look inside, everything that's interesting and colorful happens on the inside. So I kind of was a slightly less judgmental about these women. But I'm going to switch gears again and talk about little girls. And I would say that this is one of my real um, hot buttons, because I'm deeply concerned about what society all over the world is doing to little girls. Because a grown woman can make that decision. She can put that burqa on herself. A little girl doesn't have the agency to buy herself a burqa or to cover herself. This is a toddler. Like, what are we doing? And also, when a little girl like that is dressed like that, can she ride a bike? Does she feel the wind on her legs? Can she run very easily? This is a picture I took last week when on my way to the print workshop. Now, if you see this girl right here, she's clearly Haredi. These are 12 and 13-year-old Jewish girls on their way to school. You could be in Iran. Like, you have no idea where this is. So we've got this happening on one side, and we have this happening on the other side. Now, I don't know about you, but anybody who's been to a secular bat mitzvah sees 12-year-old girls dressed like grown women. They're in backless dresses. They're in high heels. They're wearing makeup. They've gone on dangly earrings, and somebody is buying that for them. They're not able to do that for themselves. So when you think about these two extremes, where is the area, where's the territory that little girls get to be little girls without all this societal pressure? So this is a piece that I made called What Have We Done to Her? So again, from a distance, this looks like a pretty little smocked girl's dress. But when you get up close, you realize that these are little naughty, naughty silhouettes of, of sex, very sexual, of women. And the buttons are boobs. OK? And I'm saying, like, we're hypersexualizing these little girls. The territory that they have to be little girls keeps shrinking. Then I did a series of etchings called Crushed. And what I did is I, I, I bought off of eBay some of the most beautiful, frilly, smocked little girls' dresses I could find. And then I coated my etching plate with something called soft ground. It's basically asphalt with a lot of Vaseline in it, so it's highly impressionable. And I laid those dresses down on the plate. 
and I rolled them through the press with very high pressure. So the impression of the dress is now in the etching plate, and when I put it in the acid, it etched completely the image of that dress. This is called Tainted Innocence, and it's about what happens when you say to a six-year-old, you can't ride a bike anymore, or you have to cover up. What sense of shame does that impart to that six-year-old who doesn't even think of herself yet as a sexual being? This is a series called, also called Crushed. These are light boxes. And basically what I did is I made translucent dresses. This is Japanese paper with thread and dried flowers, but the dried flowers are where her genitals are. Um, this is a little bit inspired, I don't know if you remember, a long time ago in the 50s and 60s when you visited Israel, you got these little books of the dried flowers of Israel. Um, and over time, they faded. And for me, this, this really symbolizes the fragility of these little girls. So one of the things that's happening in Israel is that the ultra-Orthodox rabbis keep issuing these edicts about what's permissible behavior. So the day that I read, a Jerusalem rabbi said, little girls five and older should not be allowed to ride bikes. It's too suggestive. And I said, okay, this is really broken. Because what does that mean? That a six-year-old is a sex object? That a six-year-old on a bike turns somebody on? So this is an etching series called Questionable Motives. And I'm basically saying, are you really protecting her? Are you out for her general welfare? Or are you creepy? Like, is there something perverted here? There's also a chumrah that says that a man shouldn't swim with a little girl three years and older unless he's her daughter. I think this is a really troubling trend. And on one hand, I can say, okay, I can blame the rabbis, but I'm really worried about these little girls. So politically, another thing happened in Israel. I don't know if any of you remember, but about eight years ago, there was a big brouhaha that all the images of women had disappeared from the face of Jerusalem. Does anybody remember this? Do you remember the, there was a lot of horribly negative press about the Haredim insisting that women go to the back of the buses, the Eged buses, you remember that? <clears throat> so basically, we were asleep. All the women, nobody realized that the images of women had disappeared. From the, there were no billboards of women in Jerusalem. There were no advertises in the, in the, on the Eged buses that had pictures of Jerusalem. The images of women had disappeared. And then to add insult to injury, we had this whole thing where the Haredim were suddenly insisting that women go sit in the back of the bus. And then people started speaking up and said, oh, and by the way, in this cemetery, women are not allowed to give a eulogy, even if it's for their husband or their father or their brother. And oh, guess what else happened? In this huge conference of all these scholarly people, this amazing religious woman with a PhD who's more qualified than anybody else in the room is not allowed to stand up and speak in front of these men. So I, again, went back to Albrecht Dürer and what I feel is his very healthy sense of sexuality. And I went to this beautiful little etching of Adam and Eve. And I found, when I stripped away everything in the picture, except for Adam and Eve, Adam's stance towards Eve becomes quite aggressive. So this is called Shut Her Up. And this is basically, stop talking. Go sit on the back of the bus, walk on the other side of the sidewalk, don't open your mouth in the cemetery, do what we tell you. Um, and clearly she's frustrated. This is called cover her up, and this is about this obsession with how much of her ankle or her collarbone a woman is allowed to show, and this is called cut her up. For 40 years in Israel, there were posters all over the country encouraging people to become organ donors. There was a man and a woman on the posters, and suddenly in Jerusalem and in B'nai Brock, the woman disappeared off the poster. It was just a man encouraging you to become an organ donor. So I said to myself, okay, great. My liver's okay, my eyeballs are okay, my heart's okay, my lungs are okay. Just the vessel that contains them is not okay. So this next piece is called Lashon Harav. Not Lashon Hara. Okay, Lashon Hara means idle gossip. It's basically speaking badly of other people. This is Lashon Harav. And this literally means the evil tongues of the rabbis. And this is kind of my indictment of what's going on now. Where you have, so I have a terribly childish point of view about who and what rabbis are supposed to be. I think they're supposed to be examples of holiness and good behavior, and I think their job is to bring us together, not to split us apart. 
But what's going on, and I have to say, it's going on in America too. You've got rabbis that are dividing society, that are pointing their fingers, that are blaming other people. In Israel, we've got these guys who suddenly have some direct line to God who said this terrible thing happened because these people aren't Shabbos observant. So this piece is really an indictment of that kind of phenomenon where they're not helping, they're hurting. Okay, so now I think I've beat you guys up enough. I want to do something positive. So obviously you knew sooner or later we were going to get to the Palestinian issue, um, which we will not discuss politically after this because it's just too frustrating. But I decided that I wanted to do a piece that was hopeful. So I took classic Palestinian female garments and classic Jewish male garments, and I did a mashup. So male-female, and what I did was I went to the old city to uh, an uh, Israeli-Arab shop, and I bought black fabric, black cotton from Egypt. I then went to a Palestinian man who had a store of beautiful old embroideries, and I borrowed from him like 20 different embroideries, Palestinian embroideries from different villages all over Israel. I then took those embroideries to Western Jerusalem, and I had an Israeli printer print them digitally on linen because I didn't want to cut up the original embroideries. Then I took the black cotton and the digital printouts back to the old city. I gave them to a Palestinian guy who sent them to Ramallah to be sewn by Palestinians. And then I hired a young Jewish guy waiting to go into the army to tie the tzitzit. Now, the tzitzit are not kosher. That was the first thing I did. There's like no way we can confuse this as being halachic tzitzit. They've got extra strings and extra knots. But the whole process was about reconciliation. They went from Arab hands to Jewish hands to Arab hands to Jewish hands, back and forth and back and forth. Um, and I made them child size. These are all about this big because that's the the age in which we need peace education. That's the only way it's going to work. This next piece is called Red Lines, Green Lines. So for any of you that have read anything about the peace process, there's always a place where Israel or the Palestinians say, sorry, that's a red line. For us, that's a red line. We're not going to compromise on that. We're not going to give that back. We're not going to do it. It's a red line. And for those of you that know what a lot of this territorial argument is about. It's about the Green Armistice Line from 1948. So in my mind, most of the time we're quibbling and quarreling over stones, literally stones. And some of these, you know, are actually very symbolic. The, the gold-leafed rock is the Dome of the Rock. This is Kever Rachel. If any of you have been to Rachel's tomb, you know that it's this little holy place that is surrounded by Bethlehem and Arab villages. So for me, stones are really important. This next piece is actually at the, uh, I don't know where this is. I think it's called, Sa not Saskatchewan, but like Susquehanna Museum of Art. I think it might be in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So this is called Betrothed to the Land. So it's a, a silk wedding dress. And sewn into the sleeves and the hem are hundreds and hundreds of Jerusalem stones. And this is really about the attachment that Israeli and Palestinian women have to the land of Israel. So much so that we can't move. It's so heavy, the burden of this attachment, that we can't go forward and we can't go backwards. We're stuck. This is another piece that I made towards the end of the second intifada called Living Here. And it's, these are my fry boots from college. I don't need to tell you how old those boots are. Um, and attached to them are, are giant Jerusalem stones. And it's really about the, the burden of this legacy and how heavy it is sometimes and how frustrating. Um, along with all of this peace talk comes issues of refugees. And I have to say that for me, Syria is an ongoing heavy weight on my conscience. And I'm actually in the studio now working on a huge piece about the almost half a million civilians that have been killed since 2011 in Syria. I mean, it's, it's 100 miles from my house, this conflict. So this is called exile. And this is really about being a refugee. It's about being a Jewish refugee. It's about all the Jews that had to leave Arab lands in the 50s. So these are all porcelain houses that are in silk organza bags. 
There's about 450 of them. And even if they break, I keep the shards because people will take whatever is left of their homes, even if it's broken to pieces. So this is really about the state of being a refugee. What do you take with you? How fast do you have to take it with you? And for me, the, the linen threads almost look like rebar. I mean, anybody who's seen pictures of bombed out cities, like especially Syria, you know, what you notice are these shells of cement buildings and all this crumpled rebar. So who do we blame for a lot of these conflicts? We blame our politicians. I have a sneaky suspicion that there's a few people that are gonna like the next few pieces. So this is a series called Please Stop Talking. Um, because I think that there is an enormous lack of listening in the world today. Every, I mean, tweeting, talking, interrupting, nobody's listening. So what I did is I captured off the, inter the internet pictures of leaders in the world talking with their mouths wide open. I put them in embroidery hoops, and then I sewed their mouths shut. So I, I mean, for me, this is an indictment of what's going on in the world today in politics, which, which is no one's listening to each other at all. Okay, now I'm really going to do a 180 on you because I'm just trying to bombard you with as many different ideas as I can. So another one of the, aside from hypersexualizing little girls, another one of my areas that I find really interesting and I think that we need a lot of thinking is infertility. So. Flat out, I want to just say, I think the technological advances are amazing. And I think that we're living in incredible times. I also want to say that ethically and morally, we don't have a clue what we've done. So this is called the commerce of infertility. Um, so there's 400 babies here. They're on ice. Each baby has a different metal tag. Every number is a different number. And what prompted this piece was this amazing story of these two girls, and I'm sure most of you remember this. This is uh, several years ago. So there were these two incoming freshmen to Tulane, Macalia Stern Ellis and Emily Napa, and the computer put them together as being potential great roommates. And one of the girls already had a roommate, and she said, no, thank you. I've already got a roommate, and they went their separate ways. And they, school started. These two girls are walking around the Tulane campus, and people keep confusing one of them for the other. And as people get to know these girls, they say, oh my god, you have to meet Emily. You guys are going to love each other. So they finally meet. On the day they meet, they're wearing the same sweater in two different colors. They both love Mexican food. They love the same music. They're like best buddies. Father's Day on Facebook, one of the girls posts a Facebook post that says, I just want to thank my sperm donor dad without whom I wouldn't be here. So the other girl reads this and said, oh my God, is your mom a lesbian? She says, yes. She goes, my mom's a lesbian. I wonder, like, I wonder who our fathers are. So they call their moms and they get the numbers of the sperm donor and they're identical. They're half sisters. Okay. Today they found five other half siblings so this is really sweet because these two girls found each other. What is going to happen when this is a boy and a girl that fall in love with each other? It's inevitable. It's going to happen. So my question is really, the technology is racing ahead of all of the ethics. And unfortunately, I wish I had more faith in mankind. But I think greed has a huge thing to do with sperm and egg banks. And we ha already have documented cases of the overuse of sperm. I mean, did anybody, there was a Canadian movie called Starbucks that was based on a true story of a guy in Montreal who was a sperm donor, and he'd fathered like over 100 children. Okay, so what are the odds? Sooner or later, there's going to be heartbreak associated with this. This is an etching called Pandora's Box. So I wrote down, okay. Ohad Ben Yaakov died in 2010 in a work-related accident, and he was in a coma for two weeks. So his parents requested that the hospital harvest his sperm, and then they petitioned the, the Israeli Supreme Court for permission to use that sperm in order to have grandchildren. Now, I'm actually not saying that this is wrong. I, I don't know what's right or wrong. The only thing I know is that we've opened a box 
and there's no closing the lid on the box. I don't really know where this ends because we're never going to know if Ohad wanted children or not. We're only, and do we know if the grandparents are really going to be able to raise that child? It's just sticky, the, literally. The whole, the whole problem is complex, ethically, morally. This is called counting your eggs. So this is about the finite number of eggs that a woman has, and this is about my lack of faith in this industry to keep things straight. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. If you start to Google this, in the Netherlands, they're turning away red-haired sperm donors because nobody wants red-haired babies. Do you know what the most requested uh, specs for a sperm donor are in Albania? Tall, blonde, blue-eyed. Do you know any tall, blonde, blue-eyed Albanian men? That's like, so there's this piece of human nature that enters this that makes things really complicated and perhaps unethical. Like, nobody walks into a sperm bank and says, I want a really sweet, short, chubby, brown-haired, brown-eyed father. Like, it just doesn't happen. So I think we have a potential issue. So this is, a, this is a series about domestic violence. So about 12 years ago, somebody gave me an amazing handbook produced by the Jewish Federation in Washington, D.C. about domestic violence. And it was the first time I'd seen the Jewish community own up to the fact that there's domestic violence. And it was full of, of true stories, of, of quotes from people. At that exact same time, somebody handed me a box of rusty old belt buckles and said, if anybody knows what to do with this, you will. So the box of belt buckles sat in my studio for about three years. And one day I was looking at them, and I was thinking, you know, belts. And then I was thinking of how when I was growing up, you know, my father never touched us. But there was this concept of being beaten, being whipped by the belt. You know, I'm taking my belt off, you're going to get a whooping. And then I thought about the idea of belts in terms of domestic violence. And then I thought about that they shouldn't be made of leather, they should be made of silk. And then one of the joys of the internet is that there are all these platforms for abused women and men, believe it or not, there are some men that are abused, to write in their true stories anonymously. And so from the internet, I learned way more than I ever wanted to know about domestic abuse. The red ones are the, are the people that never live to tell their story. But there's about 300 of these belts, and, and in terms of an installation, they can be hung on the walls, they can be hung from the ceiling, but this was a way of addressing this very secret problem. And um, the Hebrew Union College Museum in New York did a fantastic exhibition about domestic violence that these were in. And the curator told me these were in a lucite case in between the elevators in the lobby. And she said, you have no idea how many times I would see women standing waiting for the elevator crying. People don't talk about this. This is a piece, an ongoing piece that I'm, worrying, I'm working on called um, Secrets. And it's really about how women keep secrets and how we bottle them up inside and how precious they are. And it's also kind of my plea to you that um, anybody who has used perfume bottles, I'll pay to have you send them to Israel. I need them. This is a series I did called Acid. So one day I was driving to the etching studio and on the radio was an article about a 16-year-old Arab girl in Nazareth whose 55-year-old neighbor had been pestering her to marry him. And she kept saying, I really like you, Mr. whatever your name is, but I don't want to marry you. And one night, he knocked on her window, and when she opened her window, he threw acid on her face and deformed her forever. So the irony was that I was on my way to the etching studio where I used nitric acid to make beautiful prints. Except that same acid is being used to destroy people's lives. So I started to think about that, and I started to do some research on the internet, and I discovered that in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, this happens almost every day, that there's some form of acid violence. So do you remember when Sergei Feinlin, the director of the Bolshoi Ballet, had acid thrown on his face? Remember, it was about eight or nine years ago? That's him. Some of these, this is, this is relating to the young woman in Nazareth. And then some of these are, are really metaphors for an entire population at risk. So then the Jerusalem Print Workshop asked me to do an artist book in which it's, it's got about 25 different portraits and every single one is a true story. Do you remember the two Jewish girls from the London Jewish community that were in Zimbabwe that had acid thrown on them? 
I mean, it happens, and it happens a lot. So we're winding down. Um, I just want to talk about what it's like to have kids in the Army. So this is a series I did called Mothers and Sons. So all five of my children have been in the Army. My youngest son is now in paratroopers. Um, and my older son was a, um, a commander of tanks. And my three daughters were all instructors. But there is a shift. There is just a difference from being a teacher to being in combat. And again, nothing in my American life had prepared me for having sons in combat. Um, so this series is really about that connection between a mother and her son that never goes away. Um, and I don't know how well you can see, there's umbilical cord going from between the mother's legs to her son's tummy. Um, I don't know how many of you remember, like I remember clearly feeling when my kids were little and they were in a swing and they were going too high that I felt my stomach lurch. So you can imagine what it's like when you're this little dot in the sky, you know that's your child jumping out of an airplane. And this I did after Suke Tan, which was the last Gaza war, when they discovered all the tunnels. And you know we lost a lot of boys in those tunnels. And the idea that your son could be down in that tunnel and never come back out, and there are like two or three boys, we haven't gotten their remains back yet, was horrible. So I'm going to end with one last series. This is something that I did in 2015. I wish it wasn't still relevant. Unfortunately, I think it's for, for an Israeli who almost daily hears a threat coming out of Tehran that we're, they're going to wipe us off the face of the earth. Um, it's pretty scary. So for the two people in the room that were in my house, you know I love textiles. And so for years and years and years, I subscribed to a magazine called Holly, which is kind of the architectural digest of textiles. It's a beautiful coffee table magazine. And I had about 10 years worth in my studio. And one day I said, you know, I really need to throw these away. This is a fire hazard. i got to get rid of these. And of course, because I'm a hoarder, I couldn't just throw them out. I had to sit with them and look at them. And then as I started to look at these rugs and these textiles, I realized that there were elements in the textile that if you isolated them and took them out of context, they told a totally different story. So I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to take the Persian legacy, which is gorgeous, of of textiles and rugs and decorative arts, and I was going to deconstruct it and tell a new story about Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. So these are watercolor collages. This is called Fission and Fusion. Um, this is called, I don't remember what this is called, but this is, um, somebody actually looked at this and, and decided that this was also a Spartac rabbi, which it definitely is not. But um, they're all about nuclear war and mutant flana, fauna and flora. This is called toxic waste. Um, this one is about, you know, a lot of what's going on in Iran is underground. And for me, what was amazing is that all of these are pieces of rugs, but when you deconstruct them like this, they start to look like a place where you're making uranium ore. This is called heavy water. And that that little green circle on the upper left-hand side, that's an, a, like a, from the 1700s, a Persian ceramic that has all these fish swimming in a circle. So this is really, you know, nothing can live in heavy water. This is called the tipping point, and we really don't know if that little Persian guy on the upper right-hand corner is knocking that off the edge into the inferno or putting it back up. This is really about 9-11 and, and the use of airplanes to become weapons. This is called Displace. This is, for me, this was really about Syria. I painted this. We had a wicked, the last bad snowstorm we've had in Jerusalem about four years ago. And the snow was on the ground for about five days. And all I could think of was that, you know, 100 miles away, there were people that didn't have heat, that didn't have a house. This one is really about the women. Um, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, there was a, a, a philosopher in Haifa who somebody was interviewing them, and they said, do you think the Arab Spring is a good thing? And he said, I have no idea, but if you want to know, just watch the women. In these countries where there's an Arab Spring, spring if it's good for the women, it'll be good for everybody. And if it's bad for the women, it's going to be bad for everybody. And I think that's really held true. This is called Underneath, and it's about all the bad stuff that's happening in Iran underground. 
This is called the Ayatollah's Decreed. And again, all these things are made from Persian paintings, Persian rugs. And this very last one is about what could happen. I don't think it will happen. I think I, this is also, remember, when I did these, Daesh was going wild, ISIS. They were everywhere. They were not defeated yet. And I really thought if they could do this, they would do this. Like all these monuments that we hold sacred. So I'm going to end there. Um, I'm perfectly happy to answer questions. And I just want to say thank you very much. I don't know, they, they would yeah. like everybody to hear your question. Oh, I see. Okay. I understand the process from everything except the last, the, the tapestry. Could you explain what you did? So I took my magazines. They're collages. So that's basically watercolor and collage. And I just sat there with cuticle scissors, literally, cutting all these teeny tiny. Every time I saw, saw something that I said, you know, if it wasn't part of this rug, it looks really menacing or cruel, or dangerous, or and I like created weapons and all kinds of crazy things from those magazines. So I collaged them. There's an amazing, for those of you that are artists in the audience, there's an amazing surface called Upo, which is, it looks, it's for watercolors, it's for liquid media. It looks like white plastic, and it's counterintuitive. It looks like things would just beat up, and, and wa like watercolor just, bleeds. Y-U-P-O. It comes in pads. I bought it in a giant roll. It's really expensive, but it's amazing. You can wash it off. Like, it's, it's just the coolest, one of the coolest things I've ever worked with. So it's just watercolor and collage. On what? On Upo. On this, on this film. So you don't hold back in your political perspectives and in your art. What kind of reaction do you get? Sorry, I don't want to go near that. What kind of reactions are you getting from Israeli society as a whole to your work? Do they see it? And, or is it a certain segment of the Israeli society? And are you, do you get um, challenged because of your art? So that's a great question. So, and kind of a long answer, and I apologize. Um, I would say 12, 15 years ago, when Israeli curators came to my studio, they would say, oh, wow, your, your work is really interesting. It's very Jewish. And it's quite pretty. It's very American. And I would say, very American? What does that mean? And they say, well, you know, it's very finished. Like, Israeli art is angry and raw and unfinished. So it's very clear your art is very American. So, you know, then the curator left, and I had a small breakdown and said, <laughs> like, should I stop before I think it's done? I don't know what to do. And then finally I said, no, no, I just keep doing what I'm doing. I have to be true to myself. So there's a few things that have changed in the last 15 years. First of all, Haridim do not go to art museums. Okay, so the ultra-ultra-Orthodox, they don't see this work. They don't go to museums, and they don't go to art galleries. But one of the interesting things that has happened, and it has just happened in the last three years, is that whereas I think 10 or 12 years ago, first of all, anything Jewish was a naughty word. You have to remember, Israel wants to be like Europe and like America. The art museums, they want to be like everybody else. They don't want to be too Jewish. They don't want to do exhibitions that are too Jewish. They want to do what everybody else is doing. You know, Dada, Monet, whatever. So I would say that the contemporary Israeli curators didn't want to touch artwork that was very Jewish. What's happened, I think, in the last 10 years is that Israelis have become more introspective. They've become a lot more aware of the rifts that are going on in Israeli society, one of which is we've got all these Haridim, you know, and we're, we've got to live together. How are we going to do that? So, for example, the Haifa Museum, it just closed. They had an amazing show called Shop at Consumerism, and there was one room of the exhibition that it was about consumerism and religion. I had 15 pieces in that room. So the curators are starting to pay attention to artwork that has Jewish content. I would say that, that there's something starting to happen in Israel in terms of my art, 
that's getting attention. It's slow. Um, I think also because I'm angry, so the curators like that. I mean, I hate, it's terrible. Like the, the artists that do Jewish art that's celebratory, they don't get shown. The curators are not interested in celebrating God or Judaism. It's boring. I mean, it's sad. It's horrible, but that's, that's the reality. So it's, it's happening. It's slow. But the, a lot of whom I'm criticizing, they're never going to see it. No, I think now it's about equal. I have a big piece that just went to China. It's, it's, um, I'm getting there. Okay, you, ha you have a paradox going on because you have an art scene at the intellectual level that wants to get more secular, but the country is getting more orthodox, and that's actually what's going on politically between the two parties with the, where the orthodox are fighting the more liberals, and what you're actually having is liberal versus orthodox, and the orthodox seem to have a lot more power. So, so first of all, I just want to say that the same way that Israel gets a bad rap in the media all over the world is the same way that the ultra-orthodox get a bad rap in Israeli media. Okay, it's not that I'm a great fan of I'm, I'm not a great fan of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis. I mean, Israel's problem is that the, these rabbis are in positions of power. And there's a huge shift going on in the ultra-Orthodox world that you're never going to know about because it doesn't suit the narrative. Okay, the narrative is they're moochers, they don't serve in the army, they have 10 children, you know, they, they abuse all the, the things that the state gives them, but you've got an entire generation of ultra-Orthodox that know very well that they are not going to be able to pay a utility bill without a cell phone and a home computer that are getting them, that do not want to raise 12 children in two rooms, and there's a giant shift happening in the ultra-Orthodox world in Israeli society, but you're not going to hear about it because that, that doesn't suit the narrative that everybody wants you to, to think. Um, and I also just keep in mind then that when you hear these outrageous reactive statements from the ultra-Orthodox rabbis that they're scared. They know this is happening and they're frightened. So, we, I mean, yeah, we have a problem. We're a healthy democracy. Um, there's a, a lot of Orthodox Israelis that see very clearly what's happening that are not towing the ultra-Orthodox line. Um, I, I, I have faith in Israel as a democracy. I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to have lots of growing pains and issues, but... One more question? Hold on for one second. Do you have a favorite medium to work with? And if yes, what is it? I w so etching, printmaking. I mean, I'm, a, I'm really a printmaker. The problem is, is that people don't really buy prints or, or understand them. But I've had kind of a shift in my artwork in the last like eight years, which is now I care more about the ideas. And so as an artist, I think about what's the best media to express that idea. And, and because of the internet and all the resources that are, I just did my first 3D print, which I will show you tomorrow. Um, you can do just about anything. You can find somebody to help you do just about anything. But personally, my favorite thing is, is an etching. So tell us what you're going to talk about tonight and tomorrow, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, so tonight I'm going to talk about artist books, which I took out of this presentation because I wanted it to be a surprise. So weirdly, the one thing that I've done that's like in the Library of Congress and Yale and Stanford and everything is my artist books. Even more weirdly is that the only people that buy artist books are institutions and not individuals. Um, but I'm going to show you, I've done over 24. Um, a lot of them have to do with beautiful poetry. I'm going to read some very short poems that go with the books just to increase your appreciation of them. But tonight I'm going to talk about artist books and then tomorrow I'm going to talk about an amazing project that I'm the lead artist on. So in October, I spent a month in Venice with four other hand-picked artists dealing with climate change. 
And the end result of that is going to be a pretty crazy exhibition and a 64-page magazine, oversized magazine. I'm going to bring that to show just the prototype of it and talk about what Judaism has to say about climate change. And believe it or not, Judaism has a huge gift to give the world in terms of how we deal with climate change. So we're going to talk about that. <laughs>